very thankful for the songs this morning. I'll make two comments. One, I've been an emotional wreck for two weeks. Uh, just can't seem to put a lid on my emotions. Uh, a lot of tears, a lot of just, uh, just struggling with an aspect of life that I'm trusting God's uh, conforming me to the image of Jesus Christ. I, it's just, I'm, I'm just being blunt. It's just been a, it's been a long two weeks, but it's been a good two weeks. As, uh, as I turn to the Lord and try to understand some things and understand how he grows me individually. But this morning when we come to that song, there is a morning. I just, I cry for a whole different reason. Are you thankful for your salvation this morning? I don't know what it is about that song. It's, it brings me back to the emotions that I, that I had when I came to know Christ as my Savior. We're going to be talking about Christ a little bit today. Uh, we were, as we continue in our series, but I'm just so thankful for that. And then the second aspect I want to mention about our singing, and I didn't make this comment in the first service, but it, it struck me as we were singing, I worship you. Uh, maybe for future time, Aaron, maybe we can, we can change that last verse and say, we worship. We're here for corporate worship. That's why we're here. We come to worship together. And as we talk about congregation, as we talk about, as we talk about, oh, I'm just realizing I haven't switched my slides yet. Thank you for not showing the slide that's up there right now. That's the end of the sermon. I'd skip everything. Um, yeah, you, wouldn't you be happy, right? But uh, let me get, oh, there we go. All right. There we go. You're so good up there. Thank you very much for watching my back. But we come here and we talk about the glory of God seeing through the corporate gathering of Merrimack Valley Baptist Church. This is not an individual endeavor. This is something we are doing together, and, and we want to do this to the glory of God. We want, we want that. We desire that. And so we, I'm going to jump right in. As we looked at uh, uh, last week, we, we considered that God is glorified when a congregation, that's all of us, follow the leading of godly elders, and that is a few of us. And we pretty much focused last week on, on the responsibility of the congregation in that relationship with elders and congregation, elders, pastors, overseers, for the sake of of just not having to say that 20,000 times. I'll use the word elders today. Mostly I'll use the word pastor sometimes. But we kind of focused on, on the, the, your responsibility in this relationship that we have. Today we're going to focus on the responsibility that we have to you. Remember, it's all in the understanding that we are all accountable to God foremost. So I want to consider this, uh, this big idea for today. It's pretty self-explanatory. God is glorified when elders live godly lives. It is a simple statement, one we know all to be true. We, you, you could actually change that word elders to any number of words. God is glorified when the congregation lives godly lives. Uh, God is glorified when, when senior saints live godly lives. Uh, the teenagers, the little ones, and, and then that, that strange group of people between the teens and the senior saints, right? The rest of those folks, right? God's glorified when we live godly lives, folks. 
And so, I, but I, that's not a watered-down message. We're going to be very specific today, very specific in certain aspects of what this looks like. We're going we're gonna to turn to Acts chapter 20. Uh, the scripture reading today was verses 16 through 38. We're going to primarily focus on verses 17 through 31. All right? But I wanted to just have the story of, of Paul's encounter with the, the elders from the church in Ephesus. I wanted you to hear the whole story. Paul's going about his business. God is leading him to Jerusalem. He knows something's going to take place there. And he says, I have one last opportunity to encounter my fellow elders, my, my, my friends, uh, the people, maybe, maybe his spiritual children as he led many to the Lord. He says, listen, I don't have time to come to you in Ephesus. Will you please come to me? So a group of men come from the church in Ephesus, and they meet with Paul. And we're going to unpack so much of what Paul says to them. But I want you to understand, as emotionally charged as I have been for weeks, and as, as, mo as emotionally joyous I am at the moment to know that a morning changed everything, Paul is, is also a person of emotion. These fellow elders, these, these brothers in Christ, are also emotional beings. As they, as they get to the end of the story that we're not going to cover in detail, and as they, as they come together in physical fashion, as they fall upon each other's necks, and as they, as they weep because of the special relationship that they have for him, mostly grieved because they hear he's not returning to see them again. In between the first service and the second service, a brother in Christ came up to me. I have gotten to know this brother over the three years that I've been here together. And he came up to me uh, after the service and told me how much he appreciates the prayer time and the devotions that we stream every day. And how much he has enjoyed his time here, but that he's moving away. Down, not all the way to the south, but I think he's north of the Mason-Dixon line. So it's, uh, but he moving, he's moving south from us. And, uh, and there's a special relationship there. We both started coming here, I think, around the same time. And uh, he was emotional. Go figure. It makes me emotional when I see emotion. Emotions are not a bad thing. Paul is emotional. These elders are emotional. I'm emotional. I call you to be emotional about your faith. I call you to be emotional about what it is going on in your life because you were saved by the gospel. That's reason enough to get emotional. But God is still working in your life if you're a believer today. He is still working. And if you will open your eyes and see the work that he is accomplishing, allow that emotion of joy, of thankfulness. These are, these are tears of thankfulness this morning. And as we get into this text, I think much of this emotion is flooding into this text. So what does a, a godly life look like? 
If we're saying that God is glorified when elders live a godly life, then what does a godly life look like? And that's what I think Paul unpacks for us. He, I think there's more, but I can only cover four in the time that we have. Four traits of a godly life that I'm going to draw out from this text is this. One, and we're going to spend the, predom- the dominant amount of time on this trait. Because Paul spends the most, most of his time on this trait. A godly life is a spiritually consistent life. And who do you suppose Paul brings to the forefront to illustrate this trait? Himself. He comes to before these people and he, listen, they're sad because he's not, they're not going to see his face again. And he's recognizing from his, this is my last chance to speak face to face in these people's lives. Oh, I can write a letter. It's not the same. So first trait, elders should live a spiritually consistent life. How does Paul unpack this? Well, first of all, we're going to see the tie-in with last week's service because he says, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Just to tie it in with last week, elders is in the plural form. Church is in the singular. One of the main emphasis is the last week, emphasize. One of the main points I was trying to make last week was just this idea A local church traditionally has multiple elders as we understand the New Testament early church. It is not a foreign thing. It is not a new thing. This is as old as it gets. Paul is writing and he's saying to the elders, plural number of elders in this local church, he's saying, come, come to me. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you know something, right? He communicated a message, you know Remember I taught you the difference between oida and gnosko. There's a a cognitive knowledge and there's an experiential knowledge. Well, this is a third Greek word that means you know. And and it's, uh, I think actually it's a combination. The way I'm going to explain it, it's a combination of both cognitive and experiential. But it's the idea that they know with complete understanding. It's just not, they don't just know one and one is two. They know what the meaning of two is. They understand Paul. Paul's going to explain his life to them. He said, listen, you know this to be true of me. And he is going to be an example. And I'll, I'll throw that slide up there in a minute. He's going to be an example. He's saying, I've been an example. You be an example. So others will be examples as well. So they know something. Uh, and then he says, what do, the, he said, what do they know? They know what manner of life he lived among them. He was with them for a period of, I think, three years. He, these were, that's, the, that's as long as I've been here. And I'm integrated into many of your lives on some level. I'm integrated into a few of your lives on a very deep level. And I'm thankful for every part of it. So think about that. Paul's been there for three years. He knows these people. These are people that he has brought the faith to. He's nurtured. He's communicated the truth. He's saying, you know, with understanding how I have lived among you. If anybody can, can proclaim how I've lived, it is you, elders of Ephesus. He says, notice the duration. He says, from the first day and always. And so what can we, what can we take from this? Paul lived as an example of godliness in front of these elders every day. Every day he sought to be an example to these elders. He lived consistently. And that's why I'm, I'm 
pulling out this word consistently. Your elders, your pastors, ought to live consistent Christian lives. Notice I didn't put the word perfect. Paul wasn't perfect. We're not perfect. No pastor you ever have will ever be perfect. But the great shepherd is. And he is the one that empowers and calls and equips and, 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 and directs and all these things. But Paul is an example to these elders. These elders were supposed to be an example to their flocks. So this first trait is a godly life is a spiritually consistent life. And so what does a spiritually consistent life look like? And this is where we get into the nitty-gritty details. All right? First of all, Paul points out he's, that he is serving the Lord with all humility. Is it pride? Is it boastful to say that you're humble? It can be, but not in Paul's case. He's saying straight up, no, you know this is the way it was. I serve the Lord with all humility. And in my serving with humility, there were many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. Paul did not have an easy life. Without a doubt, he was seeking to uh, humble himself before the Lord, but he humbled himself before all kinds of people for all kinds of reasons. So I wanted to unpack some of that uh, for you uh, as, we, as we consider a spiritually consistent life for an elder. But remember, this is also true for you as a congregation. This is, there are some of these that are very specific to elders, pastors, but these also, many of these, most of these can be applied broadly. Uh, we are called to serve humbly if we're going to live a spiritually consistent life. He says, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials. We don't necessarily think of Paul as being a crybaby, like Pastor Greg Odeorn, right? You don't, you don't think of him. He's a fire and brimstone guy. He's the guy that can call out stuff, and, and he, he has all the knowledge, all the ability to, to confront these religious leaders and, and do it in such a way that God is glorified. But Paul, as I've already declared, is an emotional person as well. And he, he expresses those emotions. Look at these texts of Scripture as we go through. 1 Corinthians 2. He says, I was with you in weakness, fear, and in much trembling. I remember preaching this section, this section uh, a couple years ago, probably at this point, and just saying, Paul weak? Paul fearful? Paul trembling? Yes. That's who Paul was. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, he says, For we do not want to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure. We were burdened above strength. We were burdened so that we despaired even of life. I have a saying. I think it's true. But ministry is not for the faint of heart. And I'm not just talking about pastoral ministry. Living out your Christian life in your community, living it out in your family, living it out in your workplace, it's hard. And Paul was living it in all those ways. And he was the example. A lot of pressure on the example. And he's saying, listen, I, I was an example even during those times of, of, of difficulty. We were burdened. Beyond measure, above strength, we despaired even of life. And we do not consider Paul a weak Christian because he had those experiences, do we? He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verse 4, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. Paul was aware of what was going on around him, and it grieved him. 
Not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. Do you see that? He's saying, listen, I have these emotions. I'm expressing these emotions, but I'm telling you, it's because of my great love. He wanted to love like Jesus, just like we want to love like Jesus. Romans 9, 1 through 3, I love this passage. I tell you the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Why is Paul so grieved? Why can he say this, this, it's continual? I mean, listen, is he living a defeated Christian life? Is there something about Paul that's deficient? He says, no, I know the gospel. And I know there are people out there that are rejecting it. He says, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh. I just wish, I mean, he, he doesn't wish that he could actually spend eternity in hell, but he's saying, listen, my passion for the unsaved, my passion for those that I know the trap that they're in, and I was released from it. My blindness was made sight. There was a morning, folks, when everything changed. It was that morning that Jesus came out of the grave. And we ought never to get over it. Paul never did. He wants this, these elders to never get over it. He wants us to never get over it. And I certainly don't want my children and my grandchild to ever get over it and my great-great-grandchildren until Jesus comes. We must preach the gospel. We must have a heart for the lost. And we must be passionate about it. Philippians 3, For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. I think, if I'm not 100% positive, but I think the, uh, positive, but I think the context here is Paul saying, listen, I walked with some people. We walked and we talked and we called each other brothers and sisters in Christ. But something was deficient in their faith because they, they didn't have genuine faith because they have left Christ and they have become enemies of the cross. Their faith was not genuine. And it was revealed. And now they're enemies. And he's weeping over this. Paul says, a spiritually consistent life for an elder is one that serves humbly. And he speaks truthfully. I, I love this. This is what Paul, this is what Paul does a lot. We think of Paul as a speaker. I think of myself as a speaker. He says, I kept back nothing that was helpful. Now, we don't really know what he's talking about here in terms of the keeping back part of it, but it's clarified as we go on. He says, he contrasted. He says, I kept back nothing that was helpful, but in contrast to that, I proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house. Uh, taught you publicly and from house to house. Paul is saying, listen, I was, I was not shy in communicating the truth of the gospel. I was not shy in communicating to you all truth of the whole council. We'll talk about that in a little bit. He's saying, listen, I didn't hold anything back. I proclaimed it and I taught it to you both publicly and privately. If we want a model of, of speaking um, uh, boldly, I'm forgetting, well, I'm forgetting my, my, my adverbs there, but I'm just saying if we, if we are, are to understand where we're coming from, Paul was one who was consistent in this. He didn't have his special group that he catered to and just talked to, just talked to these people. 
well, these people are like me. They look like me. They sound like me. They believe like me. And I just like being around these people. Paul's like, no, bring on the people that are nothing like me. Let me find a way to contextualize uh, the gospel into their life. Let me speak the truth of Jesus Christ into their life. Let me find some way of making my liberty communicated in their language for God's glory. Let me do that. That's what Paul was all about. And we see, he says, listen, I kept back nothing from you. I proclaimed it. I taught it. He spoke truthfully, but he also witnessed broadly. He didn't just keep it to himself. I've already gone into this one a little bit, but he's testifying. We'll talk about what that testifying means in a minute. But who did he testify to? Basically the world, Jews and Greeks. This is that idea. It was like, you know, he could have been comfortable just Jews, but God called him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles as well. Most of us are probably from a Gentile heritage. Most of us. There is actually at least one person that consistently comes to our church that has uh, uh, Jewish ancestry. I love it. I love it. Because it it, it helps us identify this idea of testifying. What is is Paul testifying? We're back in Acts Acts 20, by the way, and he's communicating this to the elders. He says, I'm a testifier. What did he testify to? Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, last week, after the sermon was done, not happy that I didn't get uh, to do both passages, 1 Peter 5 and Acts 20, but you literally would have been here for two hours. Um, I asked one of the other pastors, they're like, uh, so what did you think? He says, you were a little light on Jesus. He didn't say that. That's a, that's a paraphrase. He said, I, I found myself wondering, where's Jesus? I thought, good point. He's in this half. Sorry if he wasn't in the first half but he's smack dab in the middle of this one. Paul is saying, elders, testify. Repentance towards God and faith toward Jesus Christ. This is the gospel, folks. Have you ever come to that point? Listen, I have a burden to, uh, one of the things that's going through my mind, I didn't share this for first service, and I'll say it real quick because we went, we pushed the envelope on time, first service. I'll say this. As a pastor elder of MVBC, I view my primary responsibility to equip you for the ministry. My primary responsibility is not to evangelize. As a congregation, as a member of the congregation, I must be evangelizing. But as my role as pastor, teacher, as elder, as overseer, as, 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 as elder and pastor, whatever those terms, my primary responsibility is to get you to tell people to repent towards God and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I need to do it too. Paul's saying, listen, I've done this. I testified to you and you've come to faith. You must go and testify to others. Testify to the Jews and the Greek. Don't hold back. Preach broadly. Witness broadly. Cast the seed. What does it mean to repent? It means to come to a recognition of what your sin really means. Apart from Christ, prior to a knowledge of of understanding the true gospel, You have to come to a point of recognizing your sinfulness before a holy, righteous God. Sin is not something that God just turns his eye at. No, sin is something he sends his son into the world to atone for. 
And so if you're here this morning, you've never repented. It's the idea of turning, notice it says repentance towards God. It's turning from your sin, turning from the things that keep you in bondage, the things that, that distract you from doing what God would have you to do. It's all those things that you're, you're, that you're trapped in. It's turning, for those, turning from those and turning to God. Repent. It's a great word. It's something that everyone must do if they're going to come to a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But notice it. It's not just repenting, oh, God, I'm sorry, and you turn to God. Okay, God. It's you must receive in faith what was paid for your sin to be forgiven, and that is faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. He died on that cross. Remember, folks, that was an ugly, ugly event in human history. But that is the way, that is the extreme measure God was willing to go to to redeem you, to pay the cost for your sin so that you didn't have to pay it yourself. He sent his son to die on that cross to pay for your sins and for mine. Have you ever come to faith in that? Have you recognized yourself as a sinner? Have you ever come to faith in who Jesus Christ is? He's the Son of God and what he has done. He died in your place. He was buried and then praise God, he rose again and there was a morning. It changed everything. It did for me. It did for most of you. If you are in a position today where you do not know Jesus Christ is your Savior, you must not leave here today in that same condition. You must take care of it today. And if you don't know how, it's simply praying to God, repenting from your sin, all of it, and receiving the free gift of grace which we're going to talk about in a little bit. The grace of God that was bestowed and upon all those who believe in Jesus Christ. So we need to serve humbly, speak truthfully, witness broadly. We need to obey faithfully. This is pretty straightforward as well. And see, Paul says, Now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me. All right? So uh, Obey faithfully. What does this mean, the idea of, well, obey is the idea of obey, right? You do what God tells you to do. He says, but you do it in faith. What is faith? Well, uh, Hebrews 11, 1, right? Faith is, is something that you don't really know. You can't really see. And he says, I am going bound in the Spirit. It's the idea, I am constrained by God. I am constrained by the Holy Spirit. I must go to Jerusalem. And I, I'm going not knowing the things that will happen to me there. I do not know the details, but I know that God has me on a, on a course and I must obey in my faith. And we also, as Paul, we must also be willing to suffer willingly. Notice what he's doing. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He said, I, I, don't, I don't know what's going to happen exactly except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulations await me. Think of the Old Testament when Elijah was going from place to place. It was just before the, the, the fiery chariot came down and swooped them and took them off to, uh, to heaven, right? And, and, and Elijah's following around, and everywhere they went, there was testimony that something's happening. Elijah's not going to be here long. Something's happening. Well, something's happening. Elisha was like, hey, listen, I'm going I'm to walk every step with you because I am going to see what's going to happen. Remember that story? You have to go back and read it. Paul is just saying, I, I've gone from city to city, and the Holy Spirit is making it known to me that I have chains and tribulations coming my way. I don't know exactly what they look like, but I know they're coming. 
And that's where we can say Paul was, an, was someone who modeled, who was an example of someone who would suffer willingly. I don't know if I've ever suffered for my faith. I mean, I've been bold, I've been, but I don't know. The suffering that we're talking about here, I don't know. But I'm telling you folks, there's a day coming where Christians, oh, there's a day already now, don't get me wrong, in the world now, throughout history, there's always been Christians who are suffering for their faith, giving their life for their faith. I'm just saying, not me, not yet, but someday. Either while the Lord tarries in my life, or maybe it's my child, or my, one of my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, whatever it might be, to be a Christian is going to get harder and harder and harder. And we will start to see who the genuinely faithful are. Why? Because they will suffer willingly. Because God has called them to that. As Paul has called, as God called Paul, as Paul is calling these elders. Next, we see that Paul says a spiritually consistent life is one that's it's characterized by standing firmly, right? To stand firmly. He says, but none of these things move me. He just finished talking about suffering. He just finished talking about all the stuff that's, that's going on. He says, but now listen, none of, that, none of that negative stuff doesn't move me. I know the gospel. The gospel has redeemed me. The gospel empowers me to live day by day. I know my Savior. My Savior knows me. None of these things move me. He is one who understands what it means to stand in their faith. And lastly, we see that a spiritually consistent life is one that is lived selflessly, other-focused. He says, nor do I count my life dear to myself. Paul was not proud he was going to boast in the Lord. Paul was not self-centered. He did everything to the glory of God and the edifying of others. He says, listen, I, my life, it's God's life to do with what he will. Can we not challenge each of ourselves? Can we not look in the mirror and say, can, can I do that? Certainly elders ought to be having this mindset. And there are many elders who have, who, uh, in underground churches throughout the world and, and uh, where have given their life or at least are risking their life every day. Are we willing? We ought to be. So what is the result of a spiritually consistent life? Well, I'm going to give you two. Uh, the first one is this. We see this in verse 24, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that, here's the purpose or result clause, he says, so that I may finish my race with joy. Paul says, what's the, what's the result of a spiritually consistent life? A joyful finish. Paul's nearing the end. We don't know how much time he had left when he's speaking to them, but it's ending for him with them, personally. No more gatherings together and praying and all those things and fellowship. He said, no, no, I am, I, have, I am looking forward to finishing this race with joy. He goes on to say that he also has a, has a, 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 a result, is, is that there, he has a confidence in his completion. Maybe not worded that way, a confident completion. As we look at 24 through 27, he says, so that I may finish not only my race with joy, but so that I may finish the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. Jesus says, I know Jesus called me to do what I have been doing and faithfully doing. I know, fellow elders, that Jesus has called you through the power of the Holy Spirit to do what you are called to do. And God still calls faithful men 
to lead his church as pastors, elders, overseers. He calls them. And Paul says that when you're done and you've lived that consistent Christian life, that consistent spiritual life, he says, then there's joy and there's also this confidence. He says, I, 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 was, I received, you know, I finished the ministry that, God, which, uh, that Jesus gave to me to testify of the gospel of grace. Notice this. He testified to the gospel of grace. He knows what it did in his life. He knows what it's done in every life of every person who's come to faith in it. He's given testimony to the power of the gospel of grace. The good news that you do not have to pay for your sin. It's already paid by Jesus. You don't deserve it. But God did it for you anyway. Will you come to faith? He says, listen, I can give testimony to the gospel. But I also give testimony in this last part. He says, I also give testimony that I'm innocent of all men's blood, right? What, how, does, how does he say that in the text? He says, he says, therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. How can Paul say that? How can Paul say He was there affirming the death of Stephen. And Stephen probably wasn't the only one. How can he say he's innocent? We know him to be guilty, but this isn't talking about the physical blood of people. This is talking about the spiritual life of every person that Paul has given the gospel to. Paul has not held anything back that was good. He said, I've not held anything back. I've told everything. I've put it all out there. I've left it all in the field. And saying, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. I have done, I have, pro I have professed the gospel. I ha for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. I am anchored in God's word. I've preached it all. And what he's saying is what Romans 1 tells us. Everyone who's heard me is without excuse. Actually, it's even worse in Romans chapter 1. Because it, everyone in this world who's ever been born in this world is without excuse based upon the creation around them. They never even have to hear the gospel. They never, they never even need to hear the name of Jesus Christ. And they are condemned already. There is none without excuse because all are sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone is condemned to an eternity in hell unless they come to faith in the one, one person, Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, listen, I testify this day, I'm innocent because I have preached it all. I haven't held back. I have not shunned to declare not only the gospel, but the whole counsel of Scripture, the whole counsel of God. I put it all out there. They are accountable for themselves. As we speak the words of life into the air and people hear it, we are doing what we are called to do as elders, as pastors. We preach the gospel but we cannot spiritually strong-arm people to faith. And how dare we do that? Because if we lead someone to a profession of words without faith, they are condemned to hell, but they think they're right with God. We ought not to do that, folks. We ought to give a clear presentation of it's only through what Jesus Christ has done, and you need to come and humble yourself and come to faith in Jesus and repent from your sins. Paul says, I've done it all. 
So a godly life is a spiritually consistent life. That's trait one. The next three go really fast, so hang in there with me, all right? Here we go. Trait number two. A godly life is a spiritually guarded life. Isn't it nice to know that your elders, pastors, have a responsibility to, God, to have spiritually guarded lives? And there's two aspects to this. Therefore, take heed. This word, uh, therefore, is saying everything that Paul has already addressed. He's saying, now let me make application to you guys. I'm leaving. Take heed. This word, take heed, is the idea. It means to be in a state of alertness. It's, it's almost the idea of being hypervigilant. It's like you never let your guard down. Always have your eyes open. The New American Standard translates it as to be on guard. This, this is, this is he, Paul is saying, listen, elders, I've called you here because I have this to tell you. Be on guard. Be on guard for yourselves. Who's he talking about? He's talking, these are the elders of verse 17. That becomes important as we, as we look at the rest of the text. He says, be on guard for yourselves, but also the whole flock, all the flock, because you are to guard those under your care. I told you that so many of these principles are applicable to, to the whole congregation. And certainly we're, we're all called to guard ourselves. We're all supposed to lead consistent Christian lives. But here, this is a responsibility upon pastors and elders. Paul is saying, take heed, guard yourselves and all the flock. We have a responsibility to protect you, to guard you. And, and we'll see some things a little bit later that we need to guard you about. But let me just talk for a second what that looks like. That means that when people come and, and they want to promote something that's not gospel, it's not the true gospel, we're not going to let them speak to you. We're going to warn you, as Paul warned, as told the elders, and, and, and as he is the example, as we're to be examples, we're going to try and teach and teach and teach you so that you're well prepared to go out in this world and... and and feel as if you are walking under the protection of God's Word the way it's been faithfully taught in truth. So we're supposed to guard. A godly life for an elder is a life that is Holy Spirit-guided. Now you ought to be speaking Holy Spirit. You ought to be living a Holy Spirit-guided life too. But specifically here, it says, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. Why? Well, first of all, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He's saying, listen, you have this responsibility to guard and protect because the Holy Spirit has guided you. Your pastors, your elders, however we mesh out these terms, are not here by accident. We have been led by the Holy Spirit to do what we are called to do. Also, in between the services, had a conversation with another brother in Christ. And, and we talked about the fact that I feel like a number two guy in a number one position. And it took me years to accept that. Because when I am weak, he is strong. When I can't do the number one thing, because I'm not a type A personality, I'm not going to spiritually twist your arm, I'm not, I'm not going to yell at you with no reason, because I didn't get my way. I'm just telling you, I feel like a number two guy in a number one position. But I'm in the number one position, and I get that in our current setting, and, and, and even as we go forward, whatever, we'll figure all that out as we go. But I'm just saying, Holy Spirit did that. Holy Spirit called all your pastors here. There's not a single one that would not give testimony to how God brought them here. 
through the power of the Holy, and, uh, Holy Spirit and the leading of the Holy Spirit. But notice this. He, the Holy Spirit brought us here, and he brought us here. It says the Holy Spirit made you. He's ta- Paul's talking to the, the elders. He made you overseers. He puts you in the position he puts you in. Notice this. To shepherd the church of God. That's our job. That's our calling. It should remind you of last week's text. 1 Peter 5, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, the one that you're a part of, serving as overseers, serving as leaders, serving as those who are accountable for the way things go. Accountable to who? Well, accountable to the congregation, but predominantly, mostly, ultimately, accountable to God. Notice this, which he purchased with his own blood. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I think there are scholars who are too scholarly, and they have all kinds of discussion about this topic. But we understand who bled for our, for our salvation, do we not? Can I hear his name? Thank you. Because seriously, there's all kinds of, well, God the Father didn't bleed. Holy Spirit didn't bleed. Got that. Jesus Christ, the Son, bled. That's what it's saying. Paul's not confused in his theology. He's saying, to, listen, elders, overseers of Ephesus, in your church, shepherd that church because it was purchased with the blood of God's Son. This is no small task we're involved in. We do, are not practicing some, some Christianity that's milk toast. We're not, we're not here on staff to pamper you. We're here to poke and prod and lead and comfort and, and direct and, and cry with and do all those things that we're called to do. But we're all supposed to do it because God has said, you have to have this job. It's my purpose for your life because I purchased this church with the son of my blood. And when we gather for corporate worship, we are worshiping the one true Savior, Jesus Christ, together. Because this is all what we do. This is the church. Trait number four and the last trait, a godly life is a spiritually discerning life. This is also something that's true of you, but very specifically true of your pastors. All right? For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. Isn't that scary? Savage wolves are going to come in, and they are not going to spare you. What does that look like? I don't know if it's happened here, but it happened at Cornerstone. I was a brand new pastor. I see them walk in. You know, I've shared this testimony before. They, were, they looked nice. They acted nice. They spoke nice. Very kind words. They used even Christian terminology. But it, they stand for a false gospel. And I had to stand up. They're standing in the back. Like those guys are standing up in the back right now. They're standing in the back. They just walked in. Somebody out of the kindness of their heart of our church membership invited them in on a Wednesday night. Or Sunday night. And I saw them, and I recognized the name tags, and I recognized the look, and I said, folks, listen, we have some guests with us here today. And they don't believe the gospel as we believe it. And they will use terminology that doesn't mean what we believe it means. And although they're here with us, I have to warn you, do not believe what they believe. I had to say it. That's what... That's what people who are recognizing being spiritually discerning, we have to do that. It was easy. I knew them. I could could picture them. Listen, it's not always easy. 
as he goes on, he says, and, for, and from among yourselves men will rise up. What? From among ourselves? From fellow elders? There's going to be people that from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things. Now, whether that's the fellow elders, which I think is what he's saying, not necessarily within that particular group, but as Paul's leaving, as they carry on the faith, as they carry, listen, there's going to come a time where wolves are going to come in and they're going to wear sheep's clothing. They're going to wear your clothing. It says, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. They become self-centered, self-focused, preaching a false gospel. And he says, he commands them, therefore watch. And this is the last command that Paul gives them. Therefore watch. It's, it's the idea of guard, but it's not the same word. He's saying, therefore watch. This is your role. Be spiritually discerning when you have these uh, wolves in sheep clothing and, and wolves in pastor's clothing. He says, be, dis- be on watch. Be discerning. And remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. There we go again. Paul is talking about his tears. So folks, listen, why does a, what does a godly life look like? Well, in many ways for all of us, to be spiritually consistent, that's something we all should shoot for. Spiritually guarded, I think individually certainly, but we have the extra role of making sure we're guarding you. Holy Spirit guided, that's for everybody, but specifically believe that your pastors were called here. And spiritually discerning, we have the responsibility to look out for you and what's being taught and what's being going on in the world and to call your attention to things. I do that in my way. The other pastors do it in their way. It's not that you aren't supposed to be discerning. You are. You're supposed to be the Bereans searching the Scriptures to make know that what we're teaching is, is truth and accurate. So God is glorified when elders live godly lives. God is also glorified when you live godly lives. Let's just say it that way. But here's, here's what I'm asking you to do as we close. Please pray for the pastors and elders, slash elders of MVBC. Pray for us. There's a lot at stake. You may not like all of us. We may have some quirks that rub you the wrong way. We may actually say something wrong from time to time. Um, pray for us. We're not perfect, but we want to be consistent spiritually. And then here's another one I ask you to consider. Please pray for the future pastors, elders of MVBC. What do I mean? Are we leaving? I hope not. Not anytime soon. What I hope is that the heritage that this church will have, the, the, the legacy that this church will have, will be generations of pastor elders coming through these walls and, and glorifying God by living spiritually consistent lives and doing all the things that we've talked about today, all the things we've talked about last week, all the things that we will talk about in the future. I'm just saying that if we could be talking generations, but it'll only happen if we're, if we're doing what God has called us to do, both as elders and as congregations. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for your great love that you've expressed to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, you, you saw fit from the creation of the world to know what your plan was to redeem sinful man. You knew before, during eternity past, some of you knew my name and you knew I would become your child. Father, if there's anyone here that is to be your child, I pray that they would pray that for repentance even now 
and they would come to faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ. It's all of Christ, none of us. Lord, we're thankful for this church family. We're thankful, I know I am, for every single pastor. And your hand that is upon them. I'm thankful for every person in this room who gives testimony of faith in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, help us to, to recognize the, the results of living a consistent spiritual life, a sp- consistent Christian life. We get to finish well, finish joyfully. But, Father, for those that they just, they're lost, they don't know where to turn, they don't know what to do, I pray that as your Holy Spirit calls them even now, that they would understand the simplicity of repenting of their sin, all of it, all at once, and coming to faith in Jesus Christ and asking him to be Lord of their life since he is King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, we praise you for our salvation and we praise you that there was a morning that changed everything. And we praise you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.